Well, uh, it's a joy for us to be back. You guys are always such a blessing to us in so many ways, and uh, we rejoice every time we get to be with you and see what God and hear what God is continuing to do. Uh, God has a plan and a purpose, right? I mean, he's not like reacting every day and, and learning and watching and going, you know, I think I'm going to do this different than I had planned, right? You understand that, right? God has a plan. Now, the other part that you and I understand probably fairly well is that God's plan is rarely carried out the way that you and I would have planned it. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, God God does things in a totally different way than us. I mean, you just think back, you can go through the whole history of the Bible, and you see example after example of him doing things in a very, very different way than you and I would have had we been in charge. For example, if you take Noah, right, and the, the, the whole world is wicked and all this kind of stuff, if we were... If we were God at that point, we would have probably just wiped, we'd have done the sons of thunder thing, right? Just wipe them out. You know, I'm not going to go through this whole ark thing. I'm not going to take Noah through that. We would have had a good reign of uh, judgment immediately and selectively on that perverse generation. None of this boat building, none of this animal gathering, none of this stinky one-year, ten-day boat trip, being cooped up in an ark, all that kind of stuff. We would have just done it and just wiped it out. But you know what? God the Father knew best, right? I mean, his way is so much better than our knee-jerk reaction way because in Noah and the ark, we have this wonderful picture of salvation in the ark. We have this wonderful picture of the faithfulness that God shows to his own with Noah and his family and their faithfulness that God granted them to obey. Uh, We we saw this wonderful opportunity for uh, sinners to repent yet again. We would have done it different, but God's way is best. The Father knows best, right? You take Gideon. I mean, we'd have done the Gideon thing totally different than that, too. I mean, the Midianites needed to be defeated, and we would have just said, you know, God, just vaporize them. Wipe these guys out as quick as fish and get it done. But God has a totally different plan, right? God, God decides that you're gonna, he's going to whittle down the army. He's going to uh, have them drink water. And the way they drink water determines how, who's going to fight. And it's going to be 300 people fighting instead of 32,000 people fighting. Father knew best. Because in that, what we saw was uh, his power. We saw uh, Gideon's faith strengthened. And he sent a message, didn't he, to the pagan nations around as well. Take the Garden of Eden. Why even let Satan in? I mean, we wouldn't have even let the forbidden tree to be there, would we? We just made it simple. But God knows best. Because without the fall, I mean, think about this. Have you ever wondered what the benefit of the fall is? You know what I'm talking about? Why the fall? Why go through all this? You understand that we can see the character of God better because of the fall. How well would we have known, for example, his mercy had there not been a fall? How well could we have understood his love had there not been a fall in the fullness of it? His justice, things like that. It looks to us like, well, why have this stuff happened? But the beauty of it is God is, is revealing himself and showing himself in a wonderful, uh, gracious way. We would have never seen the fullness of the, the work of the personal work of Jesus Christ. If we were God, if we were Christ, would you come down here to save this, these people that are acting like enemies? I don't think so, right? We would have stayed in the throne rooms of heaven with the angels attending and all that kind of stuff. We wouldn't have certainly let evil mankind persecute us, beat us, humiliate us, 
kill us. We would have zapped them from day one. But the love of God and his forgiveness and his mercy and his grace was exhibited in a way that couldn't be seen otherwise. You see, God, the Father, always knows best. Now, I want to take you to a passage today that is not a passage you typically run to. It's not a jugular text. It's not, uh, you know, if you're going to look at the life of David, you're going to go where? Maybe Goliath, right? You're going to hit Goliath. Man, Goliath, that preaches. You know what I'm saying? And there are texts that use like, man, we just, I can get into that story. It's so exciting. And, but the Bible tells us very, very clearly, right? All scriptures is God-breathed, right? And profitable for teaching, for reproof, for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Do you believe that? I know you believe that. That's what you're doing out here on a Sunday morning, right? Because you believe the word of God is, is real and true and can impact your life. And what we find here, what I find fascinating about 1 Samuel 19, if you want to turn there, is that it is this period of David's life that falls between the time when he was named to be the coming king, the king, right? But he had not yet become king. Now, we read through the Bible, and we can burn through the text pretty quick reading through it, right? And these time periods seem short. And I want you to understand that from the time when Samuel was in Jesse's house, and he says, this is the one, God shows him that David is the king that's going to replace Saul, and he anoints his head and all that kind of stuff. From that time until the time that he's actually put on the throne is about 35 years. How, how many of you, raise your hand, how many of you are less, 35 years old or less? Go ahead. Oh, some of you are Mom? No, she didn't raise her hand. That's good. <laughs> 35 years of life. So your entire life it's been that way. And then so. And you've got to think, as David, who is, who is told to be, by God in his own word, a man after his own heart, how did he handle that? What did he rest on? What did he cling to? What was he able to uh, rejoice in that would help him endure the time from the, the mountaintop of being anointed king to the mountaintop of being crowned king? Because there's valleys in between. And I don't have to tell you that in our own lives we have those peak times, don't we? And we certainly have those valley times, don't we? How do we get through them? What can we learn? And so we come to this text. Now, I'm sure all through these 35 years, including our text here, David was wondering, okay, what's going on? I mean, he's not, it's kind of like Job when all the stuff was going on with Job. He didn't get a lot of information about it. God didn't say, hey, this is my plan. Just kind of hang on. He just said, you're the king, anointed, boom, and he's back in the pasture. Did I hear that right? Is that what God meant? Is that what his prophet said? And I'm sure he was wondering a little bit, just, you know, what's, what's going to happen? And you put yourself in your shoes, what, in his shoes, what would you do? Would you be like, uh, hey, Saul, uh, you know, I'm here. But, you know, God, I, I don't know if you heard from Samuel and all, but I'm supposed to be king. Could you, like, uh, maybe move your stuff out? You might have gone in there and just tried to rip the, 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 the crown from Saul's hands, right? Even if you were his friend, you're going, even if you're the one sitting in that room that day, you're going, when's this going to happen, Right? But God, see, is at work through all of this, and you don't want to miss that. God has all these, these trials and persecutions that are coming David's way, and, and this is not God being, his plan being interrupted. This is all part of the whole plan. You understand that, right? That God is still at work, even in the hard times. I wonder if there were times when spears were being thrown at him, 
and he was being chased. Then he wondered, hey, you know what? The, the pasture was kind of nice sitting out there strumming on my banjo. Well, do you want a banjo maybe, but you know what I'm saying. Just kind of praising the Lord out there in the peace under the stars. Writing songs. But how David got through that, and this is really one of the defining characteristics of a man after God's own heart, is that he knew that the Father knows best. He knew that God had a plan, God's plan, God's timing was best, and, and he could rest in that. Now, as you look here at chapter 19, uh, we see that things are not getting better for David, but really worse. But David trusts God. Look at verse 1 of chapter 19. Now Saul told Jonathan his son and all his servants to put David to death. But Jonathan, Saul's son, greatly delighted in David. So Jonathan told David, saying, Saul, my father, is seeking to put you to death. Now, therefore, please be on guard in the morning and stay in a secret place and hide yourself. And I'll go out. I'll stand beside my father in the field where you are, and I will speak to my father about you. If I find out anything, I'll tell you. Now, it's interesting here because... the the Spirit of God chooses to put in here multiple times this relationship between Saul and Jonathan. Because you remember, if Saul's the king, who's going to follow him when Saul's gone? Jonathan, right? So it says over six times, actually, in this passage, just right here, Jonathan, his son, Saul's son, Saul, my father, my father. My, and over and over, this relationship keeps bringing bear. And I want you to understand that because the previous chapter uh, you've seen the picture of the friendship between David and Jonathan where their hearts were knit together. Okay, so Jonathan's not sitting here going, I want my throne and all that kind of stuff. He's totally cool. He's a man after God's own heart as well. And he's seeking for what God wants in the matter as well. So he's coming along and he's saying, you know, I'm going to help you. I'm going to come alongside you. I'm going to speak to my father about you. And if I find out anything, then I'm going to tell you. And this really is one of the great fleshing outs of that relationship that you saw started in the previous chapter. A true friendship, you know, is, is this kind of friendship. And by the way, I know in our society in Southern California, there are a lot of, a lot of people that don't have relationships, really. You know what I mean? They're cursory relationships. They're kind of just superficial things. I would, I would, I would entreat you to sometime, take some time, study David and Jonathan and, and decide to have those kind of friendships in your life that are centered upon a, a, a common interest, the word of God, the God of the word, where your hearts are knit together. These guys were different. They weren't alike in every way, but they, were, they had one thing in common. They loved God. And, and start to have better relationships than just Hey, brother, how are you? How was your week? You know, and this kind of stuff, relationships. You know what I'm saying? This is part of, this is life. Is to, to pour yourself, iron sharpening iron, coming alongside one another. That's what the body is to feel like, right? Where you, you, it's not that you're best friends with everybody in this place. It's not possible to do that. You don't have enough hours in the day. But find those people who will spur you on to love and good deeds that will sharpen your, your love for, the, for God and his plan and who will help you to see your, your weaknesses and the things you need to repent of and encourage you in the times it's difficult. And be that kind of person. I tell you what, this church, if, if you have those kind of relationships growing and building ever more throughout this body, you will have an impact outside these doors because people are dying for real life to happen. You know what I'm saying? 
and not just this superficial nonsense that we call real life, where we hop in our car in our garage, drive to our office, don't get too close to this guy, don't get too close to this guy, you know, and just kind of continue on. In those relationships that you build, by the way, even the ones that are not like David and Jonathan, that you're starting to build relationships with those who don't know Christ, you have the opportunity, therefore, to tell them about Christ from a position where you're connected. Okay? Jonathan and David, they have this relationship, right? And he's like, hey, my dad wants to kill you. That's what my dad says, and I want to help because I know what God's plan is in this matter. Friendship is not only about warm fuzzies, great fun, conversation, liver quivers, that kind of stuff. There's risk. One fellow defined a friend as the first person who comes in when the whole rest of the world's gone out. I kind of like that one. That's Jonathan for David here. That's where he is in this passage, coming alongside his friend David, no matter the potential cost. Verse 4. Now, Jonathan had seen his dad do some kind of ill-conceived commands like this before. Back in chapter 14, you can go back and you remember he made a vow that the army wouldn't eat until they had the victory. Remember that? And then what ended up happening, they finally got the victory and everybody just went nuts and ended up sinning with an orgy of blood eating and all this kind of nonsense. Because he'd made a promise that really was not a good promise, right? So Jonathan understands this about his father. So he goes into his dad, verse 4. And Jonathan goes in and he spoke well of David to Saul. And there you go again, his father. And said to him, do not let this king sin against his servant David, since he has not sinned against you. And since his deeds have been very beneficial to you. For he took his life in his hand and struck the Philistine, and God brought about a great deliverance for all Israel. You saw it, Dad, and rejoiced. So Jonathan comes in here with some wise counsel. He makes three arguments for his case that we'll see in these verses and following. Uh, They also, by the way, show the love that Jonathan has for his dad to go and and reason with him, right? Instead of just like, well, my dad's stupid or whatever, you know. But he goes and he wants him to see the light. He's concerned that he sees it the right way too. The first thing he, he basically goes with his argument, his counsel to, to Saul is this. David's innocent, Dad. He says that right there. You see it in verse 4. Since he has not sinned against you, what wrong has he done? Has he, has he tried to usurp the kingdom? No, he, he's been humble. He's been obedient. He's been loyal. And you'll see this with David all throughout. I mean, he has chances to kill Saul, right? And he has his mighty men around him going, kill him, kill him, kill him, kill him, kill him, you know? And David's like, hmm. See, that's, that's the Lord's anointed for now. If the Lord wanted me in that position, he would have placed me there. Father knows best. He's innocent. Second thing he brings to Saul's attention is that David has been a great benefit to you, Dad. And he brings up, you know, Goliath. That's the example he uses in verse 5 there. He says, for he took his life in his hand and struck the Philistine. That's Goliath. And the Lord brought about a great deliverance. For all of Israel. Remember that, Dad? You saw it and you rejoiced. And you gotta, if you're sitting in, in, in Saul's tunic at this point, you ought to be listening, right? Because it isn't that long ago that they were sitting at the Valley of Elah, right? And where's Saul? Saul's in his tent. Where's Goliath? Goliath is coming out 40 days in a row, stepping forward and saying, Hey, where's your God? Somebody wanna fight me? You think your God is gonna help you? And Saul's like, is he gone yet? You know, he's, he's hiding in his tent. Everybody else, their knees are knocking together and they're scared. And here comes this little kid that's been out on the farm 
right? And he comes in and he sees this and he's like, what in the world is going on here? What I see is I see a Philistine, this pagan, putting down the great God Almighty, the Lord of hosts, and I see the army of the God of the Lord of hosts quivering. And he, he like can't get it. He just, I mean, his view of God, again, is huge. He, he understands that God knows best. And so David's like, well, what's going on here? And, and everybody's like offended by this. Brothers are like, well, what about you? You're just taking care of a bunch of little sheep. Why don't you go back there? We don't need your advice. He's like, I want to go. I'll go because God's the one fighting the battle, right? Goes to Saul. Saul's like, yeah, okay. What in the world is Saul thinking, by the way? You understand the Eastern, ancient Near Eastern thing is when they would have one, you know, Goliath fighting David, that's, that's, that's representative, okay? They're fighting each other, winner takes all. Instead of, you know, wiping out everybody in a big old battle, let's have our two best guys go fight, and we've all agreed to live by the results of it. And Saul's such a chicken, scaredy cat, that he's sitting in his tent, and he's like, okay, let me give you some armor, let me get you a sword, and he puts all this stuff on this kid, and the kid can't even hardly walk, and he's like, I don't need that. You know, God took care of me. God protected me from the lion. God protects me from the bear. He can protect me from a nine-foot-six-inch Philistine. You know the story, right? He goes down to the brook, he gets the five stones. Some people think the five stones because Goliath, you find out later, has some brothers. <laughs> Maybe you need those. And he goes down there, and I love it because of the picture, and I've stood in the Valley of Elon. You see this, and you just picture David just going, man, I'm so fired up about God. There's that guy, he's just talking about how, you know, God's nobody, and, and he's going to wipe us out, all this kind of stuff. And God's on my side, and, and, and he just, he starts towards him, and it says that he ran quickly. He went like, get behind a little bush, get behind another little bush, you know, get up there, see if I can sneak up on him, you know, do something to him. No, no. He's like, all right, here we go. God's on my side. Boom, boom. And I was picturing him, you know, doing the fast run, you know, just getting a little faster, boom, 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 going down there and just... Putting it in there, just running, and just whoosh, pop, boom, bash. That's it. And David wasn't going, whoa, that worked. I'm so surprised. He goes, God is in charge. He's the Lord of hosts. Who should defame his name? Jonathan says, remember that, Dad? And Saul would not forget that, right? Remember the benefits? I mean, the times that he played his harp for you, Right? And just gave you that piece with the this gift that he had in the music area. You saw it and rejoiced. And he gives him a third reason there in the middle of verse six or in the middle of verse five. Why then will you sin against innocent blood? And the reasons you don't want to sin by slaying an innocent person. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by putting David to death? Without a cause. There's no reason. That's concrete truth. Verse 6, Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. And Saul vowed, as the Lord lives, literally by the life of Yahweh, he shall not be put to death. That's actually true. He's not going to be put to death. <laughs> Although Saul, we're going to see him forget about saying that in a little bit. So verse 7, Jonathan called David, and Jonathan told him all these words, and Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as before. 
So David is restored to Saul's service. Again, he's the king and the anointed king. You understand this, right? But yet in humility and service, the guy goes and submits himself under whatever God's plan is now because he understands what? That the father knows best. Now, we're not real sure how much time transpired between verse 7 and verse 8, but Saul again does return to his old ways. And there... This is just kind of the way he is. It says, when there was war again, and there, by the way, there always was war. This was kind of the, really when, the, when Israel said, we want a king like the other nations, they're basically saying, we want a warrior. And so this was kind of what was in the, in the plan for them at the time. When there was war again, David went out and fought with the Philistines and defeated them with great slaughter so that they fled before him. By the way, this is characteristic. David keeps going out on behalf of Saul, wiping out the enemy of the, the Lord's armies. Verse 9, but still, now there was an evil spirit from the Lord, which we don't have time to get into, but that's interesting, isn't it? On Saul, by the way, this is what I mean when I say God's plan can't be thwarted. Because you'll find this even with David in his own life. There are times the Bible talks about a census, for example. Uh, Satan caused him, the enemy caused him to, to number the people, and then also says the Lord caused him to do that. That doesn't mean Lord equals Satan, but what it does mean is that Satan can't do anything unless the Lord has let him do it, right? And in God's plan, this is where this needs to be right now, so he gives Saul over in this sense here. There was an evil spirit from the Lord on Saul as he was sitting in his house with his spear in his hand. By the way, that should tell you something, uh, oh, David. Saul sitting with a spear. Saul's a problem when he has a spear in his hand. And David was playing the harp. Uh Uh-oh, we've seen this before, right? It's like a repeat. Deja vu all over again. And here's the great warrior who's just defeated the Philistines, right? Back with with his instrument, trying to give peace to old Saul. Verse 10. And Saul, I love the simplicity of the way the word of God says this because I can tell you what, it's not... An action movie or something would have this ter- terribly different. It just says, and Saul tried to pin David to the wall with spear. Boom. Matter of fact. Literally, Saul tried to strike David and the wall. I like that. I don't know if it's a good, good advice, but I remember my high school football coach telling me, when you hit somebody, I was on defense. When you hit somebody, is this true or not? Because you played like at different levels than I did. When you hit somebody, hit through them. You, know, you try to hit their back. You know, just boom. I mean, because you don't want to hold back. You're really wanting to, is this Christian-like to talk about this? <laughs> and it's like, man, just throw that spear through David. I'm going to hit David. I'm going to hit the wall behind him. But God has a plan. He slipped away out of Saul's presence so that he, Saul, struck the spear into the wall. In other words, <laughs> David and the wall, he just got the wall. And David fled and escaped that night. By the way, this little phrase is recurrent in the next couple of chapters where you see David fleeing and escaping, fleeing and escaping over and over again. It's a pattern that you see. The pattern goes something like this. A wartime situation requires the valor of David. God, Saul brings him in. God gives him the victory. Victory caused people people to love David more. Remember the you know, Saul's slain his thousands and David's slain his ten thousand things the gals were singing after the battle. You know, you just know Saul loved that one. And this would cause Saul to get more and more jealous and Saul would persecute David. And this is the pattern. And it's a pattern of war and it's a pattern of insecurity and jealousy and 
just sinful reactions, right? By the way, this is the guy Israel was wanting. We wanted a king like everybody else that's going to do the war thing and is going to be that kind of guy. And Saul doesn't see himself as placed there by God. And when you don't see yourself in your situation by God's providential loving hand, you're going to want to try to fix that and change it whether God wants you to or not, right? And so he's thinking he has to keep his position. David knew it was all God, so even in the hard times and the bad times, he could rely upon him. And that's the pattern that comes on and on again. It ends up with David fleeing and escaping that night for now. Verse 11. Then Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him in order to put him to death in the morning. <laughs> See, but he's forgotten verse 6, right? Uh, by the Lord Yahweh's life as he lives, David will not be put to death. That's gone now. He's sending people to watch him out. When, as soon as you see him, you wipe him out. But Michal, that's David's wife, okay, told him, saying, if you do not save your life tonight, tomorrow you're going to be put to death, David. So Michal let David down through a window, and he went out, and there's the phrase again, right? He fled and escaped. And Michal took the household idol. What's a household idol doing there, right? And she laid it on the bed and put a quilt of goat's hair at its head and covered it with clothes. <laughs> and when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, Shh, he's sick. It's not feeling well. <coughs> Saul sent messengers to see David saying, bring him up to me on his bed. I don't care if he's sick. Bring him in here that I may put him to death. When the messengers entered, behold, the household idol was on the bed and the quilt of goat's hair at his head. And so Paul says to Michal, says, why have you deceived me like this and let my enemy go so that he's escaped? It has to be bugging Saul at this point a little bit that Jonathan's standing up for him and Michal, his daughter, is standing up for him and the people are singing about the thousands and the ten thousand. At this point, it's really kind of irritating, I'm sure. Why'd you do this? And she says to Saul, he said to me, let me go. Why should I put you to death? Is that what he said? You hear what she's saying there. He threatened to kill me if I didn't, Dad. Surely Saul doubts that. Why continue the charade after he left, right? But it gives him a good excuse, a good ground to kill him. He threatened the royal family. Verse 18, now David, see it, <laughs> fled and escaped and came to Samuel at Ramah. Now, you want to know a little bit about what's going on with David at this point. I want you to turn, keep your finger there in verse Samuel 19. I want you to turn into the book of Psalms, Psalm number 59. Okay, 59. So, now this is a... a a marvelous record of the going-ons in the heart and the mind of a man after God's own heart in the middle of this situation. And it's Psalm 59. It's a prayer for deliverance from enemies. And you'll see in the little, uh, the little notes right above the verses that start there, it says the context of this is when Saul sent men and they watched the house in order to kill David. This is when he writes this thing, okay? So you want to know what's going on in his head? Here you go. Right from the get-go, what you're going to see is a man who is dependent upon God. He understands God. The Father knows best, right? He has a plan, and he, he's depending on him. See his dependence? Five times in the first four verses, you're going to see this. Deliver me from my enemies, oh my God. 
Set me securely on high away from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from those who do iniquity and save me from men of bloodshed. For behold, they have set an ambush for my life. Fierce men launch an attack against me. Not for my transgression, not for my sin, O Lord. For no guilt of mine, they run and set themselves against me. Arouse yourself to help me and see me. He's not whining here. And by the way, it's not wrong to pray to God. Deliver me, help me, save me, right? God cares. And this is not a sinful thing that he's doing there. Now, God may or may not deliver him, right? That's God's business. But he's just sharing his heart like a child to a father, okay? And he says, deliver me. Deliver me, save me, help me. By the way, notice that David has carefully considered his own heart to search for, see if he's clear on this matter. He says, it's not for my transgression, nor for my sin. Have you ever been persecuted without reason? I mean, it's one thing to be persecuted because of our sin, right? Because we reacted poorly or did something wrong. That's a whole different animal. But what he's saying here is, I've looked at my heart and I haven't done anything that would warrant this kind of response to me, Lord. Blessed are you who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, Jesus said in the the Beatitudes, right? If you've ever been persecuted without reason, you know, that's that's a, it's a time to really watch yourself so that you don't go, you know, wait, I'm righteous in this, God. You owe me. (laughs) Genie in the ball, kind of praying. Right then you see that the righteousness is not intact. Rouse thyself and help me and see. And, th- and you, O Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel, awake to punish the nations. He calls him the God of the armies, the God of the heavens, uh, Yahweh Elohim, Sabaoth, my God, the covenant God who covenanted with Israel. Awake to punish the nations. By the way, we're really uncomfortable with this this morning, aren't we? In precatory psalms, do you get a little nervous when you read those? It's like bash the babies against the rocks kind of stuff. I mean, it really doesn't, I mean, it's kind of like, wow, that doesn't sound like the love of Christ, right? But they're in there. And they're, they're in there for a reason. <laughs> but if you pray like that, if you go, well, yeah, I'm just praying in pictorial, can I just implore you? You better have your heart right. <laughs> Not like, I just want a little vengeance. But vengeance is his. Okay. Say, so, oh well, this is this is an Old Testament concept. Well, God's the same yesterday, today, and for I mean, this is not this is not different. Okay, it, it, people say, well, it doesn't fit in this dispensation because this is the love dispensation or whatever. Uh, let me give you a, a non-Old Testament phrase that's found in the New Testament: the wrath of the Lamb. Remember that one? That's you know the, the, the blood, the horse, and coming in judgment, and all this kind of stuff. God has a righteous and judging side, and He judges righteously. We understand that, right? And what David is imploring to is here is he sees uh, God's name being dragged through the dirt, and it, because he cares about God's name, he cries out, oh, "Avenge yourself! It's your deal. Don't be gracious to any who are treacherous in sin." Selah, think about it. Ponder that one for a little. They return at evening, they howl like a dog, they go around the city, behold, they belch forth with their mouth, swords are in their lips, and they say, who hears? <laughs> we can do what we want, where's your God? Kind of like Goliath there at Eli. He hears the noises of coming servants in the midst of his situation. They howl like a dog, they go around the city. He says, I'll tell you, I know who hears, verse 8. But you, O Lord, laugh at them. You, 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 you scoff at all the nations. Because of his strength, I will watch for you for, why? 
for God is my stronghold. By the way, don't miss that in verse 9. See the little word watch? It also be translated wait. You may have that in your translation. This is the part we often miss in our prayer life, isn't it? We're like, God, here's, what, here's our request. We're letting them be made known to you. Boom. Let's go. And sometimes God's like, just you need to hang on in this situation for a little bit. Too many times we're like the folks who aren't willing to wait and aren't willing to watch either. Like, you remember Acts 12, you know, Peter's in prison. They pray. They have a prayer meeting. And he gets let out by the angel and goes to the prayer meeting. And they're like, it can't be him, right? It can't be Peter. He's in jail. Don't you hear what we're praying about? Didn't you see our prayer request list that we passed around? God's like, mm, you prayed. Why are you so surprised? God is my stronghold. David calls to God for help, and no matter how long it takes, he's watching expectantly for that answer. It's not that he's like, well, wait, well, I'm just going to be resigned. I'm going to try to keep myself busy until something happens here. He understands God at any time could bring this to be, and so he's watching for it. He's checking it out. I can't wait. I mean, we pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, right? I mean, how much are we watching for that? I mean, I'm not talking about, you know, let's get some numbers out in our Bible and figure out the dates. I'm not talking about any of that nonsense at all. What I'm talking about is, do we live our lives in such a way that we show an expectation that Christ is coming back? Are our priorities in line with that theology? Look at his confidence, verse 10. My God and his loving kindness will meet me. God will let me look triumphantly upon my foes. I love that confidence. It's Job, right? I know that my Redeemer lives. Do not slay them, lest my people forget. Scatter them by thy power and bring them down, O Lord, our shield. On account of the sin of their mouth and the word of their lips, let them ever be caught in their pride. And on account of curses and lies which they utter, destroy them in wrath. Destroy them that they may be no more. That men may know, and here's the, here's the bottom line of an imprecatory prayer, okay? That men may know that God rules in Jacob to the ends of the earth. Selah. Think about it. David's concern is not... Their pain and wrath, David's concern is that, because he's a man after God's own heart, is that God's name be lifted high and glorified. And he's tired of seeing people drag his name through the mud. And he basically says there at the end of 13, God, you're sovereign. Show him you're sovereign. Please. Continues verse 14. They return at evening. They howl like a dog. They go around the city. See all the pressure? The people chasing David, all this kind of stuff, the context, the noise outside. They wander around for food. They growl if they're not satisfied. And here's the beauty. Look at verse 16. But as for me, and this, my friends, is the pulse of a man of God. You can show me the, the storms and the waves and all that kind of stuff. But here, my theology is going to override my vision. But as for me, I will sing of your strength. Your strength maybe isn't even evident yet, but you know what I'm singing about? I'm singing about your strength. Yes, I will not only sing, but look at it. Verse 18, I will joyfully sing of your loving kindness in the morning. He didn't need to be out in the pasture to sing praises and the stars and all that kind of stuff like I mentioned earlier. He can do it in the middle of the dogs howling outside ready to take his life. 
for, what's he basing this on? He remembers what God's done. For you have been my stronghold. I've seen it my entire life. The bear, the lion, Goliath, and he keeps adding things to that list. I've seen it. You don't change. You have been a refuge in the day of my distress. Oh, my strength, I will sing praises to you. For God is my stronghold. He repeats it again. That's four times. God is my stronghold who shows, the God who shows me Loving kindness. He's my stronghold, my strong tower, my refuge. How does a man after God's own heart endure persecution and hardship and trial? And these 35-year times when things aren't going the way that you kind of want to see them going maybe? By having a practicing, faithful, confidence, confident reliance upon God and his strength. See, at this point, while the outward victory has not come, the inward victory has already happened. David's won. You're my stronghold. I got the great God Almighty with me. That's a man after God's own heart in a difficult time, right? You say, well, man, I wish I acted like that in my difficult times. I wish I was David. Do you? (laughs) Let me tell you what you have that David didn't have in the fullness. You have the indwelling spirit of God as one who has been saved in this day. He had the spirit come upon him at different times and different capacities. But you have the indwelling spirit of God. Let me tell you what else you have. You have the more, more sure word. You have the entire finished revelation of God to tell you about his character, who he is, and to learn more and more and have his promises like we talked about last time. You have Christ in you, the hope of glory. You say, well, why do I, why do I suffer? Why do, when I suffer, do I not respond that way? Well, let me just submit to you that that's true in my case as well, too often. And Pastor John's and your elders, everybody, we all struggle and we, none of us are perfect and David isn't either if you read the whole story. You understand this, right? But uh, the maturing fact that we want to see in each one of our lives is I want to be so just saturated in God's truth that it is more real to me than the hardship I face. Does that make sense? In other words, maybe my health is going downhill rapidly. Maybe my job or my business is going poorly maybe I have a child that's in rebellion maybe I don't know whatever your trial is there's a lot of them James calls them many colored (laughs) trials but in that trial you go you know what father has not left me we sang about that earlier didn't we he is with me he is faithful he is working all things together for good to those who love him, to those who are called according to his purposes. He is not without power. He is not without wisdom. He is not without ability of any kind. So, as we focus upon that, we go, yeah, I, I'm not thrilled about the fact that I'm going through dialysis, or I'm not f- thrilled with the fact that I'm going through whatever my trial is. It doesn't mean that I'm just really excited about all the details of it but I know that God's faithful and I know that he's working in it and so I can embrace it 
and I can even be like some of the martyrs back in the 1500s who were burned at the stake for their faith, man. You go in there and they, some of those guys would go up to the, the pole that they would tie them to and light it, light, you know, fire, and then you burn to death in front of a crowd going, yay, burn to death. Some of those guys would go up and they would kiss the pole. Does that mean they're looking for the trial? I'm going to be about the trial. No, 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 no. But they understood that this is God's way of working in their lives for his glory. And so even whether it's the great blessing that comes down that you kiss or the great trial that comes, God is working all things together for good, for his own who love him, for his own whom he's called according to his purposes. David got that. And you and I, need to continue to work in our lives until such time that he takes us home, glorifies us, all that kind of stuff, and, and practicing that practically in our own trials and situations. Verse 18 of First Samuel 19. It doesn't mean that you just sit there. Here we go again, third time. Now David fled and escaped and came to Samuel at Ramah. And he told him all that Saul had done, and he and Samuel went and stayed at Nioth. By the way, an archaeological dig has uncovered this place, a good place to get lost. It's a maze-like structure of buildings, all this kind of stuff. And it was told, verse 19, it was told Saul, saying, Behold, David is at Nioth in Ramah. And Saul sent messengers to take David. This guy is persistent. You've got to give him high marks for that. And when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying, with Samuel standing and presiding over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul. Now, this is not a salvation thing we're talking about here, okay? This is just the Spirit of God. He resided on a lot of different things and people, and, you know, it says he came down upon them, okay? And they prophesied. This isn't really, I don't think, the future-telling aspect, like, this is what's going to happen next. This, you know, it's not that. They're just giving glory to God, praising God. That's what the word means, too. And when that was told to Saul, he sent other, here's his persistence, right? He sent other messengers, all right? Well, these guys got corrupted by the dark side, you know, so let's send some more guys in there. And look what happened, verse 21, they also prophesied. So Saul sent messengers again the third time, and they also prophesied, gave glory to God. So the point here, if you're missing it in the text and the way it's written is, he's trying to get David and kill him, but the guys keep going there and get distracted by praising God. So verse 22, if you want something done right, you got to do it yourself. This is his thinking, right? So he himself went to Ramah and came as far as the large well that is in Seku. And he asked and said, where are Samuel and David? And somebody said, behold, they are at Nioth and Ramah. And he proceeded there to Nioth and Ramah, and the Spirit of God came upon him also. So that he went along prophesying continually until he came to Naoth and Ramah. And he also stripped off his clothes. And he too prophesied before Samuel and lay naked all day and all that night. Therefore, they say, is Saul also among the prophets? Really, if you look back now, it says, the spirit of God came upon him also. And then I ask, uh, it could be translated, even he, it even came on him. You know, even, even Saul, the spirit of God came upon him. Three times it says that, him also, he too, he also The most powerful man, the king, is still subject to a mighty God. So it happened before he even get there. He went along prophesying, praising God, continually until he came to Naath and Ramah. And he also stripped off his clothes. Now, this is a great shame, all right? Especially in this ancient Near Eastern custom to, you know, take your clothes off in front of people and stuff. 
uh, it should be in every situation, but less and less, I guess, in our, our own world. But he too prophesied before Samuel and lay naked all that day and all that night. And so people are going, well, is he, is he, is he one of the prophets? 20 verse 1, then David fled from the house and ran. Yeah, I'm thinking what David's going through in this whole prophecy. Here comes a wave of guys. They start glorifying God. Here comes another wave of guys. They start glorifying God. Here comes another wave of guys. They start, here comes Saul. He starts doing it. That must have been a wonderful experience for David, except for the whole Saul being naked thing. He sees the power of God. His enemy can't even carry out what he wants to carry out. Because God is more powerful than him. And it had to just reinforce his trust in God's power and his presence. He understands more and more. And this is the beauty of what's going on here. You'll notice that this isn't like tied up at the end of the chapter, right? It didn't like, and everybody lived happily after, you know, it's not all done. He's going through this for a long time. So this is why you don't normally go to a passage like this because it doesn't give you that, boom, see the ending? Because we don't typically live in the ending. I thought it'd be fun to go here because we're living in the process still, right? And so we're, we're often like, well, I'm, I'm pragmatic about my faith. I'm doing this, I'm doing this, I'm doing this so that this happens. You understand? But along that path, a lot of times, the, the, the so that hasn't been realized fully yet. Now, it's fully done. Your salvation is fully complete, but you're still being sanctified, right? You're as much a citizen of heaven today as you ever will be, although you'll know that in its fullness later. And someday we'll see him fully and be fully known and vice versa. It'll be awesome. But we're in a process, aren't we? And I love the fact that this thing dies off just like Annie fled from Naoth and Ramah again. And this is the process. Because that is a great example for us because as we stay in our process and we don't see a miracle of healing or we don't see a kid that turns around and comes back to Christ or we don't see uh, our finances improved and all this kind of stuff from our job or whatever our issues are. We still know there's a great God who is sovereign, who knows best and who's working in the situation, in the process. My son Christopher is with me. He's... Uh, he loves when I preach because he loves it because I, oh, I will usually use a story of some sort to embarrass him. But um, when he was little, you know, you do the, these puzzles. I'm not talking a thousand-piece puzzle. I'm talking about the one with like eight, ten pieces, big wooden chunks, you know, and you put it together for kids. And when they're little and they're just starting out, man, this is like frustrating, right? Because like, well, it's just a left wood, you know, and that's yellow and that's blue. And, you know, they're just like, you know, we're figuring this out and we haven't arrived. And, and sometimes you'll see a child get frustrated as they try to do that. And they're just, you know, the pieces, some are dark, some are light. That is, what is this supposed to be? But then when the father comes in, and you come into your child who's frustrated like that and say, how fast can you put that puzzle together? All right? I mean, it's just like, I'll see, you know, if you wanted to. Why is that? Because we, you can see as a father, you see the picture, Right? And you can see how those pieces fit together to, to make that picture. You understand? See, God the Father is working. And yeah, right now we're on that one dark piece of the puzzle maybe. And we're going, I don't know how this is ever going to make a beautiful picture. God knows. God's at work. And I'll be honest with you, I've seen more dark pieces of the puzzle 
have powerful impacts on people's life than the brightly colored pretty ones. Those do have a good influence, but sometimes those dark pieces, when responded to properly, are the greatest times of growth that we ever have. Would you agree with that? And the father looks and he says, just wait and watch, my child. I am at work. You don't have anything to fear. If God is for you, who can be against you? Who can separate you from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus? Nothing, right? Death, nor life, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing. Angels, principalities, things created, not things created. You pick a category, it's in there, and it can't separate you, including yourself. Trust me. Follow me. Because I know best, the Father says. So what do you face? If you're here and you're in Christ, all those promises I just mentioned are yours. They're yes and amen. If you don't know Jesus Christ in a saving way, you know, the gospel's for you. God will save you, right? Repent of your sin, turn to him in faith. Let him indwell you with his spirit, guide you by his word, and give you a new focus and direction in life. doesn't mean that it won't be It'll always be easy. Good luck with proving that one from the lives of saints in history or scripture. In fact, your life may get harder in some ways, practically speaking. Because now you have to make, you're starting to make decisions based upon truth rather than what's pragmatically best for you. And you're maybe making stands because of the character of God instead of just going with the flow like a lot of other people. But even if the times are harder, I can tell you this, the peace that passes all comprehension is there that you didn't have when you were doing the pragmatic thing, right? And the comforter never leaves you. So if you don't know Christ, I mean, Pastor John, myself, any, any other believer here will be more than happy to share with you how you can come to know him, right? But if you do, let's start living in reality reality of God's word, the truth that is without error and in the middle of our trials and hardships. We're on that progress road that we've talked about. We trust knowing the Father knows best and give him glory. Not because he came upon you and forced you to give him glory but because that's what you want to do. Father, we thank you for this time together in your word today. We thank you for your truth. Lord, we thank you that uh, it is like a sword. It does uh, check out our motives and split apart our very bones and marrow of our life and lays us bare to see our failures. How easy it is, Lord, for us to focus upon our situations and forget that you are a great, mighty, awesome, powerful God who is working these things together for good as we follow you and serve you. Lord, may we be maturing. May we be ever being conformed into the image of your son so that we may reflect to a watching world the reality that there is a king, there is a God, and he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to save so that we might be reconciled to to you, the Father. We pray this in your son's name.